So welcome back in the room. This session will be chaired by Paul de Grau, who is uh, the head of the European Institute at uh, London School of Economics, and I give the floor to you. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm very pleased uh, to be here to chair this uh, meeting, this session about uh, the roadmap to recovery, sustained growth, and a stable financial system. Quite uh, an ambitious program, if you ask me, because the world has um, conditions to get out of a slow growth environment the conditions to create sustained growth, and finally, the conditions to create a stable financial environment. So this is certainly something that uh, is quite ambitious, but uh, we have eminent speakers that uh, surely will be up to the task to deal with these issues. And um, I'm happy to introduce first Ricardo Barbieri, who is chief economist European economist and head of fixed income research at the Tsuho International. You have the floor. Thank you very much and good morning, everyone. <clears throat> uh, I uh, interpreted the uh, theme of, of this um, uh, session as trying to discuss how uh, the growth prospects, in particular of the Euro European economy, uh, might improve. And I just prepared a few uh, initial comments that I'm happy then to, uh, to discuss uh, later on uh, along with the rest of the panel. My starting point is that uh, at the moment we are seeing uh, a recovery in, in uh, the Eurozone economy, a very slow one. Um, and even uh, the most optimistic forecasters, like myself, are predicting growth just above 1% this year and 1.8% in uh, 2015. Uh, the European institutions have now converged towards uh, those numbers. DCB is a bit below that number. Um, all in all, the message is we will at best get a very slow economic recovery. The average growth rate of the Eurozone prior to the crisis was unspectacular, but it was 2.3% in the uh, 1999-2007 period. Since then, the average growth has been minus 0.3 percent. Uh, that is including 2008. Uh, during that period, the American economy grew on average 2.3 percent. Okay. Um, at the same time, when we look at uh, the assessments of, of the European Commission, they tell us that the growth potential of the Eurozone economy moving forward is extremely low. So they, as I said, they forecast growth of just over 1% uh, this year and 1.8% next year. But the growth potential uh, is uh, estimated to be 0.5% uh, and 0.7% in 2015. The, what, what I call the uh, Brussels consensus uh, is that the main way to resolve this problem is to continue with structural reforms. And I, I couldn't agree more. Structural reforms are necessary, uh, particularly in economies that have lagged from that point of view, uh, and some of those in uh, southern Europe, but I guess also France, uh, obviously need supply-side reforms. They need, they need to become more flexible because we live in a world in which flexibility is key to respond to the changes in um, the, let's call it the international division of labor. The rise of emerging markets, the rise of China in particular, require European countries to change specialization, and that requires flexibility. Obviously, it requires flexible labor markets. Uh, this, I think, will remain the key theme this year. Uh, particularly as some countries, notably Italy, uh, try to move forward uh, on that front. But the point I want to make today is that I think there is a deficiency in the macroeconomic framework of Europe, uh, which risks undermining this uh, structural reform effort. And I will focus on, on a few areas, and as I said, I think we can then discuss them uh, in greater detail. The first point I would make is that uh, the mechanisms 
the RFPLA that are used uh, in, uh, uh, within the Eurozone are essentially country-specific and uh, do not promote coordination of economic policy. And in addition, they are asymmetrical. Uh, what do I mean when I say they, they, they uh, do not promote coordination? You will have seen that when countries present their fiscal plans in the stability program, they're required to move towards, from a fiscal point of view, what is called their medium-term objectives, which are set in terms of their structural uh, budget balances. No one uh, discusses what should be the overall fiscal stance of the Eurozone. Do we need fiscal stimulus at this stage in the cycle? Uh, how big should the fiscal stimulus be? The driver is, is still at the uh, country-specific level. It is also asymmetrical because, as we all know, the recommendations of the European Commission are much more binding for deficit countries than they are for surplus countries. Um, the Commission thinks that Germany has a structural uh, budget surplus, but does not have any way to ask Germany to ease fiscal policy to support European growth. Recently, we saw the report on macroeconomic imbalances in the Eurozone. The Commission obviously pointed out that Germany had a 7% of GDP current account surplus in the last two years. It called on Germany to stimulate its internal demand to reduce the surplus. But de facto, there is no mechanism to bind uh, Germany to uh, change its macroeconomic policy. Uh, at the same time, uh, southern European countries, which used to be in deficits, um, are urged to continue repressing their domestic demand in order to improve their external balances. It's obvious that all of this produces um, a restrictive overall policy stance, uh, and it really doesn't add up. It's also clear that um, the current account surplus in Germany, unlike what the president of the Bundesbank has been saying, is not just the result of uh, a extreme competitiveness of the economy, which should not be redressed. Simply, uh, you, you know, you can just look at the long-term trend in the current account balance in Germany and see that never did it reach the levels that we've seen since the start of the euro. In 2007, the, the current account surplus reached 7.5%. It then uh, dipped a bit during the global crisis and then picked up again. So this is telling us that the euro exchange rate is not in equilibrium for Germany. The only way to rebalance the situation is for Germany to have more inflation than the rest of the eurozone. But obviously, this notion is not uh, agreeable. Uh, they, well, the Germans are not agreeable to this idea, and I think this uh, represents a significant obstacle for uh, promoting growth in the, in the euro area in general. Um, next point is about fiscal policy. Um, I already talked about uh, coordination uh, as being an important uh, factor in the whole story, but there's more. Um, the whole uh, structure of the stability program, uh, the fiscal compact, uh, are based on the concept of structural budget balance, as I said earlier. Now, this balance is computed uh, from the potential growth of the economy and the output gap of the economy. Uh, the Commission, uh, I mentioned earlier its estimate for overall uh, growth. The European Commission says that the potential growth rate of the Spanish economy this year will be a negative minus 1.1%. The output gap of Spain is only 3%. Uh, so that means that when you try to explain uh, Spain's budget deficit, which last year was around 6.7% of GDP, net of banking support, so bank banking recapitalization, uh, the output gap uh, helps you very little explain that. And it means that the structural budget balance of Spain is still in deficit by more than 4% of GDP. So if you take that mechanism um, uh, by the book, it, it tells you that Spain still has to tighten its fiscal policy by more than 4% of GDP. Um, once again, this uh, is a recipe for stagnation 
further contraction. In, in a sense, we are not giving Spain any credit for the structural reforms that it has implemented uh, in terms of what could be the growth potential. If, for instance, we said that Spain could have an output 8, 10 percentage points higher than this year, then we could explain most of its deficit, and we would not need to require Spain to tighten fiscal policy again. So my point is, uh, if it's not possible to change the fiscal compact that was approved relatively recently, then we need to talk about how to uh, define, uh, to better define, the concept of potential growth and output gaps, so that we give these countries more sensible uh, fiscal targets. Uh, I've, I've uh, actually written up uh, this uh, argument uh, a couple of years ago, and again this week as I summarized my thoughts ahead of this uh, event. So if anyone is interested, I'm very happy to uh, forward my, my piece on this. Then I would like to talk very briefly about monetary policy. We all uh, watch the ECB day in, day out. Um, I think within the existing policy framework of the ECB, it can be argued that the ECB could have provided more accommodation to the economy. I think it was particularly disappointing that uh, this month, uh, the ECB presented a three-year inflation forecast in which inflation is always below its target, although it rises slightly in the final year, and didn't do anything about it. And um, after the usual council meeting, we heard that um, the president of the Bundesbank said that um, he was very happy about the forecast, and he thought the forecast was in line with price stability. We know the definition of price stability for the ECB is an inflation rate of close to, uh, but below 2%. So let's say 1.99%. And the uh, average inflation rate in the Eurozone since the start of the Euros is exactly 2%. So the ECB has done a very good job. That might be an argument for saying that what I've been uh, saying before uh, is incorrect in the sense that if the ECB has, had been more uh, stimulative, then perhaps inflation would have been slightly above target. But the point here is that on a forward-looking basis, the forecast is telling us that viewed as a country, the, the Eurozone will have inflation below target, while at the same time unemployment is at 12%. So it's clear that the ECB, compared to other central banks, is not doing enough. And then there is another point on which I, I don't have a lot of hope that we can achieve major changes in the near term, which is to revisit the mandate of the ECB in the light of the treaty. Here we don't need any treaty changes. We just need to go back and read the European Treaty, where it says that uh, the primary objective of the ECB is price stability, but without prejudice to price stability, the ECB should contribute to the goals of the European Union. And one of the goals of the European Union is full employment. So it is theoretically possible to, um, uh, to argue that Europe could move closer to the dual mandate that the Fed uh, has been given many years ago. Um, I wouldn't argue that it should be price stability and full employment, but I would argue that it could be uh, maximize employment subject to the inflation target. That would make a big difference. Remember, before Draghi became president of the ECB, the word unemployment was never mentioned in the statement of the ECB. It was a taboo. And so my point is, we need to rediscuss, and I think I'm, I'm almost, uh, I've almost run out of time. I think, contrary to what I would call the Brussels consensus, while we need to keep pushing on structural reforms, we have plenty to do in terms of macroeconomic policies. We should not settle for growth rates of 1%, particularly because we live in a world in which the external environment is not very favorable. And we've seen that in recent weeks with the developments in Ukraine. That factor alone, on my estimates, could, if we had a trade war with Russia, subtract at least one point from uh, Eurozone real GDP. And given that we're growing just over 1%, it means it could stall 
uh, the economic recovery. And I don't think the Eurozone can survive another recession uh, within the next two to three years. That's all. Thank you very much. Uh, our next speaker is Professor Luca Fantacci from Bocconi University. Thank you and good morning. It's a bit embarrassing to be the second Italian to speak on a panel concerning uh, Europe's problems, uh, but um, you shouldn't blame us. I mean, it's Ulf's fault. Uh, it's not some kind of Italian connection here. Um, I do agree with, uh, surprisingly, you might think, uh, with uh, um, most uh, of uh, Ricardo's remarks, and in particular on the fact that until now addressing uh, the European crisis uh, has uh, uh, perhaps excessively focused on country-specific issues. Of course, this is, again, one thing we don't like because in the case of Italy, it's particularly embarrassing. But I also dislike it because I think that it misses the crucial point of the peculiarly European character of this crisis. This crisis, I mean, Italian problems have been going on. We were discussing this with Ricardo uh, for decades. The Euro crisis broke out only uh, several years ago, and what we ought to understand is uh, why national problems become uh, Euro-wide problems, uh, and uh, uh, more specifically, why this union, uh, and particularly the monetary union that we have created, has uh, uh, not been successful, as we might have expected, in producing unity. Despite the efforts towards convergence, we have witnessed an increasing divergence in many respects. And I will focus specifically on one aspect of this divergence that Ricardo mentioned before. And my main argument, which is implied by the title, is that perhaps we do need, as is being discussed, a banking union, a fiscal union. But apart from that, and perhaps even before that, we need to accomplish the monetary union. There are certain uh, missing aspects. Um, what am I referring to? I will tell you right away. Um, when we look at a monetary union, the condition for sovereign states that are ad adhering to this monetary union to actually stay together um, have to do with their external balances. A monetary union is an extreme form of a fixed exchange rate system. And the fixed exchange rate system will only work if there is an external balance, at least in the long run, as much money flowing out of the country as money flowing in the country, which does not mean that year after year you have to commit to a balanced trade. It means that you can have debts and credits, you can have external finance, but eventually it would be good that these debts are repaid and not simply shifted around as Adair Turner was suggesting in his previous in his lecture. Now, this is exactly what has not occurred in the monetary union since the beginning. It has been referred to appropriately as the original sin of the monetary union. We had several convergence criteria and none of these mentioned the balance of payments. And uh, uh, this did not occur by chance. This was uh, deliberate uh, on the basis of the assumption that financial markets uh, would take care of the imbalances. It was assumed that uh, through the creation of the common currency, money would flow from the center to the periphery. But it was also assumed that uh, this money would be uh, efficiently invested in productive uh, uh, undertakings. And again, we could refer to what Lord Turner was saying before. And eventually go back to the center which is not what has happened. This is a graph showing you what uh, Ricardo described uh, before. Uh, the fact that since the beginning of the European Monetary Union, you have, in fact, uh, a very clear separation between surplus countries and deficit countries. Here you have Germany on one side and uh, uh, the periphery on the other side. And you can see that uh, uh, since 1999, you have mounting um, current account surpluses on one side and uh, current account deficits on the other side. 
If we look at more recent years, uh, we see that uh, these imbalances within the Eurozone have been, uh, to a certain extent, uh, to a large extent, reabsorbed uh, on the side of uh, uh, the deficit countries. Uh, but this is mainly a consequence of uh, the depression and not a step towards recovery. It's the fact that deficit countries have reduced their imports and not increased their exports. And on the other side, uh, uh, surplus countries have increased uh, uh, sorry, have reduced their exports, but they have not increased uh, imports and uh, uh, domestic demand. Which means that, in the meantime, uh, there continues to be a buildup of net international investment positions. Uh, um, and uh, these have been fueled, uh, this is the case of Italy, cumulative financial account inflows uh, throughout the period leading up to the crisis. Uh, then you have uh, the sudden stop of private inflows, money uh, fleeing from the periphery, and uh, uh, you do not have, uh, in fact, uh, the interruption that you would expect in total inflows uh, due to the fact that at this point, uh, when uh, private uh, capital movements froze, uh, the European Central Bank stepped in, and the European Central Bank stepped in both uh, uh, refinancing uh, the debts uh, of uh, the banking system and uh, through facilities uh, that uh, financed uh, um, directly the external imbalances. Uh, so uh, since uh, the uh, outbreak of the euro crisis from May uh, 2011, Italy, as other peripheral countries, has uh, accumulated uh, uh, liabilities uh, towards the European Central Bank uh, within the um, clearing system of Target 2, which I refer to here as a clearing system that doesn't clear. It stopped clearing accounts uh, ever since the outbreak of uh, the financial crisis in 2007 and increasingly up to the famous uh, declaration of Mario Draghi uh, to, that he would do whatever it takes. And there you have uh, a slight uh, um, contraction of these uh, imbalances. Now, these imbalances uh, uh, primarily reflect uh, not uh, current account uh, disequilibria, but capital flights, uh, where the capital flights, however, are uh, correspond to capital inflows that had previously financed uh, current account disequilibria. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, it's interesting, we were discussing before in the previous session the nature of money. Target two imbalances are a particular type of money, which I would uh, not consider fiat money in the common sense. You cannot consider it private bank money. It is a sort of a official bank money. These are reserve assets created by the European Central Bank to allow payments between member states. And uh, uh, it is uh, an interesting uh, uh, third way that uh, until now has played a decisive role in financing imbalances within the euro area. It has done until now very little or nothing to reduce these imbalances. So in the remaining time I have, I will um, illustrate a proposal to reform the current rules of the monetary union and in particular the functioning of the target to clearing system of the European Central Bank in order to encourage the reabsorption of external imbalances within the Eurozone. And uh, this proposal um, refers uh, to a problem experienced uh, by the central bank, uh, which normally goes under uh, monetary fragmentation. Despite the massive intervention of the European Central Bank, we continue to have uh, a euro which is di very different according to uh, the country uh, in terms of interest rates uh, to businesses, from banks to businesses. You have in the periphery still today uh, interest rates in excess of 5%, whereas in the center you have a very lower cost of capital. What can be done to address these issues that are a prejudice, to, to, that, that um, run the risk of impairing the, the, the uh, uh, union, the monetary union itself, and uh, of causing a breakup in the long run? 
Well, um, one source of inspiration could come from uh, the proposal that Keynes made uh, at Bretton Woods as an international monetary system. As uh, many of you will know, his proposal was, in fact, to create a clearing system with uh, the explicit goal of facilitating the finance of temporary imbalances in uh, um, external relations and uh, avoiding the buildup of uh, major imbalances. A system which is quite similar to target two. Even here, it was uh, the idea of providing overdrafts to member countries that would allow member countries to fund temporary external imbalances simply by uh, recording on their balance negative uh, imbalances when they were importing and positive uh, balances when they were exporting. One major difference uh, between the clearing union of Keynes and Target 2 is that the clearing union was supposed to be restricted to the current account. Whereas, as I observed before, Target 2 is financing both current account and capital movements. And, of course, this is one major difference. A further major difference is the fact that uh, uh, Keynes uh, um, imagined within the clearing union that not only debtors were supposed to pay an interest on their debts, but also creditor countries, surplus countries, were supposed to pay charges on their credits. For the reason that uh, uh, this should induce both debtors and creditors to converge towards equilibrium from both sides. This was the basic idea. And uh, a further idea is that the creditors are benefiting from these facilities, just as the debtors, because the debtors are buying more than they could otherwise afford, but also the creditors, the surplus countries, are selling more than they would otherwise be able to sell. So they have the benefit of a larger market. And uh, the idea is that they should be paying to contribute to this. Um, this is, of course, another major difference with the target to where debtor countries pay and creditor countries earn an interest. A further point in Keynes's plan is that there should be quotas, maximum levels of uh, positive and negative balances, and eventually exchange rate adjustments in case of persistent imbalances. How can we refer to these principles and reform Target 2 in order to respond to these principles? Of course, we live in a very different environment with respect to um, the post-World War II period, where you have uh, very tight capital controls, where you don't have uh, uh, the importance uh, of uh, uh, capital movements and financial markets. Well, of course, you cannot go far, so far as to imagine restricting the use of target to imbalances just for current account, because it would create uh, major disruptions in the banking system. But what you could do is uh, to distinguish, and even here, Lord Turner made reference to this possibility, uh, different refinancing operations according to the purpose if you are financing trade or foreign direct investments, perhaps the central bank could have refinancing operations on more favorable conditions to the refinancing operations for movements on a capital account. The idea of symmetric charges could, I believe, uh, be uh, applied to target two imbalances uh, without, uh, I mean, of course it requires a, a political consensus, but um, I don't think it is, uh, it departs from the principles of the treaties, uh, imposing symmetric charges on negative and positive target two balances. Of course, you cannot imagine imposing limits because uh, the fact of not having limits on T2 imbalances was what uh, saved the Eurozone in the first place. But you can perhaps impose increasing charges as uh, countries depart from equilibrium in both directions. We don't have uh, the last point, the lever of uh, changing the rate of interest, because, of course, uh, the monetary union um, is, uh, mm, does not allow 
adjustments of nominal exchange rates. We have adjustments of real exchange rates, but even here, a principle of symmetry should apply, and Ricardo was referring to this before, in the sense that as we require deficit countries uh, to adopt uh, more restrictive budgetary and wage policies, we should also uh, effectively encourage surplus countries to adopt expansionary budgetary and uh, wage policies in a symmetric fashion. Uh, I think I have taken already um, a lot of time. I will run to the conclusions. What would the advantages of uh, this system be? Um, very briefly, First, uh, the fact of imposing a sort of a circulation or uh, rather hoarding tax uh, on excess reserves uh, at uh, the European Central Bank would stimulate money circulation. Uh, a further advantage would be uh, reduce external imbalances and avoid the fact of having external debt continuously being floated, shifted around and not paid out. Countries would converge through a cooperative mechanism, which uh, I believe is uh, coherent with the principles of the monetary union. Debtors and creditors would be freed from deflationary pressures, which of course are a burden for peripheral countries, but by repercussion also cause a, uh, uh, a slowing of growth in the central countries. Creditors uh, would pay in proportion to the benefits uh, uh, that uh, the system uh, provides to them. Trade and real investments would have a cheap and stable source of funding independent from fluctuations of the conditions of liquidity on international markets. So money, in this sense I say it's a different kind of money because it's not a money created exogenously by a central bank. It's not a money created by market discipline. It's a, mar it's a money created according to the needs of commercial transactions according to the function that it has to perform. And finally, if you have symmetric charges, you're not simply shifting interest from debtors to creditors. You are creating a source of funding that could be used for the purpose of international investments through the uh, EIB or EIF. I think I have taken more than uh, my time, so I will stop here. Thank you. So we, we can see that Keynes continued to have a great influence on our thinking. He's one of these defunct economists that uh, continue to influence practical men. We are not really a practical man, but at least uh, continues to influence us. What you, I would like to abuse my position here, your proposal to have different um, different um, financing uh, facilities and, and reminds me of the dual exchange market in Belgium where you had something similar. If, if a straight transaction you could go to a cheaper foreign exchange um, deal than if it was financial. And it really requires a lot of controls. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you are aware of this, right? Because arbitrage between these two kinds of operation and, and in over-invoicing, under-invoicing becomes extremely important. So you have to control. So we go back to some kind of control. But that's also the work of Keynes. Um, so now uh, we have our, our third speaker, um, Ulf, Dr. Ulf Dalston from the London School of Economics. Uh, you have the floor. Thank you very much. Um, so um, I will add two aspects uh, to the discussion that are linked to the theme of this uh, conference. The first one is, have we done enough to stabilize the financial markets? Uh, and secondly, what about governance in a more and more global world? So starting with the first one, I think it's generally dangerous in this situation to uh, be complacent and believe that we actually have fixed the financial system. Right now it is calm. It's actually when things are a bit calm that you should do what you need to do to, to avoid future problems. And um, the financial system is inherently unstable. Well, that's clear. Uh, booms and busts cannot be avoided. That's also clear. We will we'll always have them. But we can reduce the risks that those busts develop into systemic crises, and we can reduce the risks for bailouts of banks. 
So th there is a good reason to, to actually do what needs to be done. And um, Adair Turner has really been into many of these questions. I wanted to remind you that the system still has an extreme pro-cyclicality, that the endogenous risks are underestimated, which means that in the cases of a, uh, a bust, the risk for fire says that actually will develop into a a uh, systemic crisis or financial crisis, systemic crisis uh, are there. And we, the liquidity that we create through quantitative easing is not perhaps always in the right assets. And uh, the system has become so interconnected and complex. We have too many institutions that are too big to fail, and if one of them fails, all of them will fail. There is a lack of transparency still. Although a lot has been done to increase transparency, it's still an issue. And uh, uncontrolled third-party risks are all over the place. And then we have the problem which we actually have created, more or less, in the last few decades, an increase in maturity mismatches, uh, especially in the mortgage industry, uh, where you had much better balance between the asset and liability side before the mortgage industry was moved into the commercial banks. And there are too many incentives still in place in favor of risk-taking, and, as pointed out by by Turner and then uh, added on by Luca here, the global, global imbalances are not addressed. So what to do? I just want to show you a big list of things, and I don't want to comment on all of it. I just want to, with this list, show that there are a lot of ideas out there, a lot of uh, proposals that are to, should be taken seriously. I, I just want to highlight three of them, which I have making a bit more yellow here. The first one is, have we really done the right thing when we merge banks all the time when they fail? We're getting larger and larger banks, a less and less diverse system. Local banking is disappearing as we are merging them into to larger, larger units. And those are systemically important and uh, therefore risk to the whole system if they fail these increasingly large banks. And it creates also a moral hazard because the uh, bank managers know that if they fail, not only will they be bailed out, they also have the chance to become managers in an even bigger bank because they know that when they fail, they will, what will happen in the worst case is that they will be merged with another bank. Not so bad outcome. Now think about the other alternative, saying, okay, to, to get a more diverse system, if a bank fails, we're actually going to split it up following the business logic and the territoriality, and, and we're using the opportunity to create a more diverse system. That would create a strong incentives for bank managers to keep, keep their business under control. And then this mark-to-market um, -mark accounting, irrespective of, of if it's uh, motivated or not. Um, John Arneson, professor here, has shown how this actually creates endogenous risks. That in the case of, of, of where you get into the bust, uh, the way to this mark-to-market accounting will drive, drive fire sales and increase the risks for this crisis to develop into something, something serious. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Should, should really accounting rules drive the business logic or shouldn't the, the business logic drive the accounting rules instead? Turn it also that upside down. Uh, Alan Greenspad, the third example here, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, was saying that the biggest mistake uh, done during the 70s was, was when uh, you, you uh, took away the partnerships in investment banks and made them uh, into, into ordinary banks. I'm not sure if, the, if it was the biggest mistake, but I think it was a big mistake. And I think it, it, his, uh, the idea of recreating partnerships in investment banks is another idea. And there, as you see, there are many other ideas that I don't have time to comment on now, and many that are not on this list that are worth considering to, to, to make uh, 
the system more sustainable and, and stable. I know uh, Charles has, for instance, proposed that bonuses uh, should be based on return on equity instead. I mean, there are a lot of issues that you can actually do. Uh, the um, uh, this can, of course, not only be done on on a local level or European level. Many of these things actually need need um, um, a broader perspective because we are now entering a period of, of globalization. We, uh, the European project started as a peace project, but we all know that it developed quite rapidly to, in, to uh, an economic project, a single market project, and that has in many respects been quite successful. Um, but uh, meanwhile, when we have developed that project, took away, we have taken away hindrances, hindrances towards competition, seen to that externalities like environmental rules are implemented the same way in the whole union, etc., etc., at the same time, we have a globalization process going. And, and the fact is that today, uh, many of the Europe European countries have China as the second or third trading partner. And, and this is the reality of globalization moving on. It's um, obvious, but it, it has to be said, uh, capitalism is the best system ever created to, uh, to uh, create wealth, but it also has to be checked. And we learned that 150 years ago, during the first phase of, of, of industrialization, we saw that uh, an, a rise of unemployment at the same time as some uh, workers were exploited. We saw the rise of a, a skewed distribution of income and wealth. We saw that companies uh, established monopolies and abused their market powers, and uh, we saw an abuse of nature. Uh, and uh, th that it was driving the development of the labor unions and of democracy. Uh, a great uh, development. And out of that, there was a marriage developed. Some in the Americans call it liberal democracy, a marriage between the capitalistic system and the public order. Uh, the, uh, many on the continent call it embedded capitalism. And as a Swede, I mean, the, we love to call it the Nordic way in, in Scandinavia. This is a marriage with many names. And it has been a successful marriage overall. But the glue that is keeping this marriage together is the rule of law. And that rule of law is withering away as we are getting more and more into, into uh, a global, global uh, society. So there is a growing mismatch in territoriality between a global market economy and mainly national public orders. So we had this crisis once before. It's worth remembering, and many have, have been talked about this already, giving evidence from, from what we learned during the crisis 100 years ago. And I think these should be reread. A lot of this, there's a lot there that we actually still to, should look into. Um, at the time, after a number of dark decades, uh, the uh, result in Bretton Woods was such a, uh, a form of supranational regime. But that regime was not felt to be, to be working uh, that well after a while. And as you know, in the 70s, it was abolished. But it was abolished in favor of what? In favor of nothing, really. And this is the problem. Because uh, what we have now is a networked governance on, on, on global level. People are meeting, discussing, talking, trying to agree things. But it's all depending on the implementation in the different countries if something is really coming out of it. And uh, Charles Good have done a fantastic job on, on, on looking at what happened in, in, in Basel during, uh, during this first period and showing how national interests were blocking a lot of good uh, efforts, and also uh, avoiding uh, people to address the systemic risks. So what we have is a, uh, a governance that has a limited scope. There's a lack of authority. There's a lack of transparency. 
and there is a lack of accountability. And actually, meanwhile, the situation of the nation states is undermined by a development of a global market economy that they are, have less and less possibility to influence. So what can we do? Well, there is a dream of a, of a global government, but very few, very few want it. The UN uh, with uh, one country, one vote, is clearly not, not acceptable to the leading market economies. Self-regulation, well, that's more or less what we tried. Did that work out? Not really, did it? So, um, and then we have, of course, okay, give up the, the globalization, deglobalize, as proposed by Daniel Roderick and others. Uh, but that would be to deny uh, the uh, hundreds of millions that are now lifted out of, of uh, poverty in China and other places uh, the benefits of globalization. So it's really not an alternative. What I propose, and now it's the second proposal, the controversial proposal you are putting on the table, Luca did the first one, is a world market charter uh, to be discussed and developed by the main countries, like they did when they created the UN Charter and when they created the, the, uh, the Bretton Woods. Uh, I propose an assembly uh, with the, where people are represented, the countries are represented in relation to their economic strength, and I propose a council that uh, involves NGOs uh, and other global networks to to uh, be able to create transparency in the legislative process. But to create the rule of law, you also need a judicial system. You need courts and prosecutors. You don't need need new uh, executive institutions. We already have IMF, we have in Basel, and we have uh, others who can take on the executive, executive roles. But we do need a transparent process. I don't have time to go into that, but this is actually something where I think uh, the research community has an enormous important role into helping creating um, an, a transparent process in the common interest. Uh, that starts with evidence building, a scrutinizing global, global reasoning, developing proposals for actions in a transparent way, a legislative process that is open and transparent, implementation and enforcement, and then back to evidence again. Um, I think I've used my time, so I, 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 I stop by that. But the, this is not, I want to point out, I, I think I look, I agree with that. These are not proposals set in stones. Uh, but I think the ideas that should give uh, uh, you an input for thinking about those issues. And uh, if you think, oh, is this really possible? Well, I would ask you to think about the alternative. Thank you very much. Well, um, the, the nice part of uh, Dr. Dalston's proposal is that it let us dream yes. about the future. Okay, this being said, I think the, the floor is open for discussion. Who would like to start? Yeah, please. Can you also present yourself? Yeah, Eric Monaghan from m and I'd like to ask the panel why they think that policy-making ideology in Europe is so resistant to overwhelming empirical evidence that it's wrong. Um, and I just cite two striking examples to me, particularly, Paul, given your presence on the panel, but also having just listened to Adair Turner. The first one is the whole analysis of the euro crisis. Mario Draghi did us two favours uh, when he made his, his comments in London, whether they were off the cuff or not, which is, one, he stopped the European crisis in its tracks, but he also settled the debate once and for all, which is he made it absolutely clear it's a financial crisis. Now, he didn't reduce the stock of debt of Portugal. <laughs> in fact, Portuguese debt today is higher. Um, he didn't reduce the stock of debt of Ireland or Greece or anywhere else, uh, but he caused spreads to collapse and an economic recovery to begin by uttering words 
in my, to my knowledge, you can only solve a financial panic with words. You can't solve competitiveness or debt crisis if there's a genuine one. So to me, it's over blindingly obvious now, and Italy is a very good example because Italy had none of the indicators. It didn't have a big balance of payments problem, didn't have a big build-up of debt. Italy's problems were caused by the ECB because the ECB didn't do QE. And just a final point, your, your observation, which I think is a minority, again, which, which I can't understand. Why is, is that view a minority in continental Europe, or just even amongst policymakers and academics in Europe, it seems to be a minority. It's probably a majority view in financial markets. My second point is the success of fiscal policy in America. Blindingly obvious, they actually did what Adair Turner suggests, which is they monetized f- fiscal deficits. That's what QE is. They loosened fiscal policy in response. The only mistake Adair, I think, made was he said that U.S. debt-GDP ratio went up. It didn't because the monetary base is clearly not a liability of the state. Um, that, that, I think, is, is debatable, but I think is overwhelmingly clear that it isn't, in which case the net debt of the United States is unchanged. So the beauty of American policy, and indeed the U.K.'s policy, is the net debt of the government is actually unchanged by the financial crisis. Growth has resumed, and now in America you've got a banking system, financial system in good shape. So monetizing fiscal... Oh, and by the way, inflation in the United States is lower than when they embarked on QE. <laughs> These facts seem to me to be entirely ignored in the policy debate in Europe. Okay, so you want to respond to this? Yeah, please. Well, maybe I'll respond to, it, uh, to one particular point, which is uh, quantitative easing. Um, if I go back to the early months of, of 2009, when the Fed <coughs> started QE, uh, there was a debate in Europe, uh, will the, the ECB do the same? And uh, I thought the simplest form of QE would have been just to look at uh, the capital keys in the ECB, and say how big should the program be uh, on, a, on the basis of some uh, factors that might have been what kind of uh, expansion do we want in money supply or other ways in which central banks have sized their uh, uh, QE program. And obviously it wasn't done. And even when the ECB then created the S&P program to try and uh, rescue Greece and then the other countries, it was a big deal. We know that there is huge uh, German opposition to this. Um, so I think um, it's, it's largely a reflection of the fact that it's thought as something that will only happen uh, in a worst-case scenario. That is, if things get even worse than they were in 2011, uh, perhaps we are in outright deflation, then the ECB will consider QE. Views in Germany differ. I mean, I have a good dialogue with um, policymakers in Germany with the Bundesbank, and um, some members of the Bundesbank are open to the idea of QE. But there seems to be a difference between what the leadership of the bank um, and uh, other you know, people, uh, senior people in the bank, think about uh, QE. I think at the moment, the reason why we don't have a debate is because we think the US is exiting, uh, things will get uh, better, and we know the Germans would not accept QE. Uh, so it's just this uh, very firm position, and um, in my comments I mentioned other areas where we have seen a similar situation. We have um, a view about the current account not being uh, a problem. We have a debt break in Germany that uh, requires the government to reduce its debt-to-GDP ratio by rounding balanced budgets. And surpluses would actually be welcome. So the fact is that the view we have at the moment in Germany is essentially contrary to all the mechanisms that we can think of as rebalancing the Eurozone and promoting growth. And I don't want this to sound like a biased view given my uh, nationality, right? Um, I do think that there's a, a lot to do. Uh, in countries like Italy. Italy is clearly the country that has reformed uh, the least, uh, I think, among the, the countries that were under pressure. So if I could point to a solution moving forward, it would be a combination of reforms in countries that need them, but at the same time, a degree of, of fiscal and monetary stimulus that we haven't seen so far. Um, and again, I think um, the view of the German government uh, is that after the European elections, we start talking about fiscal union on their terms, which means we set even additional rules uh, over and above what we have in the fiscal compact. I think someone will have to break the news to them uh, 
that this is not going to work. And I think the other countries should also make the point that they will never sign additional fiscal rules unless it is within uh, a framework that promotes economic growth. Okay. Uh, Howard Stieber from the European Commission, DG Markt. Um, um, actually, I, I liked a lot uh, Ulf's uh, presentation because um, uh, you may know that uh, your dream of the Assembly and the Council is exactly what the World Federalist Movement is fighting for for the last 60 years. <laughs> uh, so uh, I have uh, some good friends there, and uh, I think uh, you should maybe join forces with them. There are many very detailed proposals, and they work in Washington, in New York, with uh, uh, UN reform exactly on this uh, idea. So uh, I share your dream, and uh, uh, I think this is. You could also name it the recreation of the European Union at the European level. I mean, this is also a way to see it. Um, I also uh, um, share the problem that was mentioned in in in, in Lucas' uh, presentation that uh, um, the the breakdown of the Bretton Woods institutions, or let's say the breakdown of the system in in '71 was not really replaced with something at the international level. You know, the, the European replacement that uh, was uh, uh, um, created gradually after 73. And I would like to point that to a, uh, to a, a note from Italy that is not, uh, maybe not publicly available. It's, no, it's now publicly available because it's in the historical archives and it's more than 20 years old, so I can send it to you if you want. Uh, the Ital Italian members of the Mon Monetary Co Committee in, in spring 73, before the oil price shock uh, hit uh, the country, which was in late 73, as you know, uh, point, uh, uh, rang an alarming bell that the IMF does not have sufficient funds at this juncture uh, to provide sufficient balance of payments assistance for a severe downturn. And uh, this was a very, very uh, forward-looking, almost prophetic note, because half a year later, the oil price shock uh, really hit uh, Italy very strongly, uh, whereas uh, UK was already in a, in a bad shape and, uh, structurally, but also there it hit, uh, made things worse. And uh, the, EU, the EU actually very quickly came up with, uh, with the complementary resources to complement the IMF resources. And actually, finally, in 74, 75, the, the, the payments gap, the balance of payments gap of Italy was more than financed with the joint resources from IMF and the new European facilities. Uh, I, 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 when, I, when I studied this using historical archives documents, I was, I was surprised because uh, the, the parallels with uh, the current crisis, of course, are quite, uh, are quite, are quite strong. And um, maybe we should be a little bit more, um, um, I mean, more appreciate what, what we managed. We, we did many things too late. The 78, the 2007, uh, 2008 crisis, 2009 crisis was misinterpreted in Europe for a long time. But after all, maybe it would be worthwhile mentioning that uh, that there was uh, the biggest uh, sovereign debt restructuring in history in, in in Greece, and that much of what Anne Kruger was proposing in 2002, uh, 2003, what, which was discarded later on as as as, as unrealistic, uh, was nevertheless and exactly and the, no no and the, uh, yes and I hope. <laughs> <laughs> and the last, the last question was, uh, I mean, the last point was, the, the, in the first presentation, uh, the, um, the, the output gap, the, how, the measurement of the output gap, uh, I don't know how we can quickly change this because uh, it's also a rule of law problem because you know that the measure how the output gap is computed in the European Union is actually a, a rule of law uh, really set agreed by all member states. So you would need uni, uni, unan, unanimity to change uh, uh, the rules how you compute the, the output gap. Thank you. Yeah. You, you, you want to do that, Luca? Thank you. Yes, just uh, briefly, thank you for your uh, remarks. Uh, I um, subscribe to the view that uh, the main point is the lack uh, of international monetary institutions at a global level and uh, even at a European level, certain flaws in the construction of the monetary union. 
Uh, as you know, uh, the Keynes' proposal at, at Bretton Woods was not adopted, and this was one of the reasons why the IMF uh, did not face uh, the challenges uh, for which it was designed. Uh, I would like, since you were mentioning uh, the, Euro the history, uh, let's say, of uh, uh, European monetary systems, to mention the fact that uh, between 1950 and 1958, uh, Europe had a clearing union, which was actually working according to Keynes' uh, principles uh, in the form of the European Payments Union, which did, in those years, an incredible job in opening up the economies to foreign uh, trade, increasing uh, liberalization of foreign trade, uh, promoting development, uh, and uh, avoiding the buildup of major imbalances. So I think that is another incident in European history that we should be looking at. If you want to comment. Yeah, I, I, although I'm very happy for, for your positive comments, I, I, I want to be guarding one thing, and that is I, I don't really believe, uh, and this is, has very much to do with how we function as human beings, that we want to have the social and cultural uh, conditions decided as close to us as possible. I don't believe in, in, in sort of a world federalism uh, because of that reason. What I think I believe in is a very limited, restricted uh, uh, legislation for the for the markets, which basically should be about the, uh, the financial markets, about competition rules, IPRs, uh, about uh, the domiciliation of income and the management of externalities, and that's it. Uh, if we try to stretch that in any Way, I think we, are, we, we actually come counter to the perceptions of, of many people of, of the kind of life they want to live because they want to have these kind of, of decisions that concern the social and cultural aspects very close to them. Okay. Maybe I'll just add yeah. a quick comment on the, you know, the, uh, the rule to compute potential output. Uh, I think the difference here is that, uh, as I mentioned, I think there are flaws in the fiscal compact, but the fiscal compact is now a treaty. Uh, the way in which we compute output gaps and potential output is not a treaty. So I, I think in terms of the flexibility of the two things, it's where we should be working, you know, rather than the compact. One interesting thing to know is that when you take the structural budget um, and you compare it to the headline one, the structural budget is more volatile than the headline one, because it's being recomputed all the time. And when you look at the historical figures of the structural budget, you will find that it's more volatile, which is amazing that we now want countries to um, set their policies based on something that is extremely volatile, because we have to recompute it all the time. Yeah, Paul. Yes. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, Paul van der Noord, Autonomy Capital and Chatham House. Um, very stimulating discussion. I have uh, a question, a really open question for uh, Professor Bavieri. It's not a comment in disguise, but really an open question. Uh, you referred to the Ukraine crisis and uh, suggested that, uh, uh, the, or explicitly said that the euro area would not survive another recession. I, I find it a very interesting comment. Uh, <clears throat> you could also have referred to the possibility of a, a credit event in China. Um, but given the fact that it's more, presumably more the core that is, is exposed to those potential shocks rather than the periphery, uh, my question is, uh, why would your area not uh, survive a recession uh, prompted with those types of shocks, and have you thought through a scenario you could share with us? Thank you. Well, uh, it was uh, maybe a, a bit of an overstatement, but I, I do think in the event of a triple dip, of a, of a serious recession, uh, there, is a con there is a severe risk of, of breakup of the euro. I mean, you have to consider not only the um, economic dimension of it, but also the political dimension of it, which I think will be very evident with the forthcoming European elections. Uh, there are many anti-Euro, anti-EU uh, parties around uh, the European Union, and I, and I think um, they would gain further support. It would be very difficult to tell public opinion 
there's another round of austerity, there's another round of rising unemployment. Uh, it would be very difficult to find a way to accommodate monetary policy given the framework of the ECB. I, I would find the policy response very problematic. And when I think about the debt ratios of countries like Italy, now at 133% of GDP, um, as you know, in 2007, that ratio was 104%. So it was almost 30 points below where it is today. Um, so a deep recession can cause um, a rise in debt to GDP ratios to levels where um, there is a significant risk of unsustainability. And let's not forget, Spain is approaching 100%. France is estimated to, to reach 96 or thereabouts. Uh, this year. And when you are above 100, your dynamic becomes less uh, stable, not becomes more, I should say, unstable, because it, it magnifies the effect of the difference between the interest rate you're paying on your debt and the growth rate of the economy. Uh, and you need a much bigger primary surplus, which then becomes pro-cyclical. So, um, I think uh, a period of, again, zero growth, close to zero, would not be fatal, but what I have in mind is something more serious, where, where, where you have combination of shocks that causes a significant drop in GDP around the Eurozone. At that point, I think, that particularly if it was asymmetrical, uh, with Germany still outperforming I think, the issue, or whether Germany should leave the Euro, or the rest of the, or the weaker countries more probably should uh, get out of the Euro, I think would become more significant. I will also make one, one last observation, that in response to the crisis, um, there is greater segmentation of financial systems within the euro. So today, um, the implications of uh, a medium-sized or large country living in euro uh, would be, I think, um, much um, less serious than they would have been in 2008-2010, simply because the rest of the world is less exposed to the likes of uh, Spain and Italy. Although we are seeing a return of investment in recent quarters, um, still we are less integrated within the Eurozone than we were four or five years ago. Okay, uh, we have one minute, and my, and my forecast is that the question, the formula question is more than one minute. And to give an answer is even more than one minute. So I think I'm going to close here now. Um, I think we had a, a very interesting um, discussion, a very wide-ranging discussion, and uh, we have even been dreaming with Ruth. So now it's time to, to have lunch, and uh, I thank the, the members of the panel for their insightful comments.